You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are pleased to have back to the pod Professor Mike Wagner today to analyze exactly what happened in this week's vice presidential debate. Professor Wagner is an award-winning professor in the UW School of Journalism and Mass Communications. There's so much to talk about, so let's get started. First things first, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Professor Wagner. My pleasure. Uh, we can jump right into the news of the day. Obviously, the vice presidential debate just happened last night. We would love to get your initial reactions. So do you think there was a winner? Do you think there was a loser? Sure. Um, I don't know that there was a clear winner or loser if we define winning and losing as gained more votes than they had coming in. Um, I thought Harris did a better job in the debate uh, than Pence did um, in terms of answering the questions, in terms of um, keeping to time, in, in terms of um, handling the pressure of the situation. Uh, but I thought they both did a, you know, a, a pretty fair job. I thought the debate was more conventional, where the things that people might object to were candidates going over time or not answering the question that was directly asked of them, which happens in every major debate. So it wasn't uh, quite the train wreck uh, that the, the presidential debate uh, that already occurred between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump was. Um, I think that uh, we also, we continued to see that the campaigns have very different strategies. It seems like the Biden campaign really wants voters to be focusing on the pandemic and the state of the economy. And the president's uh, campaign wants folks to focus on uh, law and order and uh, potential uh, economic gains in the future of the stock market, tax cuts, things of that nature. And when we kind of compare those two agendas to what the voters are telling uh, us that they care about, it seems like the Biden campaign is hitting on the issues that are the most important to voters. The question is, are those the most important to the undecided swing voters in a small handful of states? To follow up on that then, what do you think for each candidate was their best moment individually in the debate? Do you think for each candidate they had a specific moment where they really shined through in either making their case to undecided voters? I think Senator Harris's best moments were in two different kinds of communication. One was uh, the multiple times she would smile, look at the vice president and say, I'm speaking when he interrupted her, but it was her turn to talk. I thought that that um, played pretty well. And I also thought that uh, when she was talking to the camera about what Joe Biden wants to do for the people at home and asking people to think about their own lives and how they felt when the pandemic began and, and things like that. I thought those were her effective moments. I thought that Vice President Pence um, was effective um, when it came to aggressively defending the president's record kind of broadly, but then he was effective more particularly in trying to pin down uh, Senator Harris on whether she would agree to uh, expanding uh, the size of the Supreme Court. It was something that uh, the president uh, went after former Vice President Biden on in the first debate, and both Biden and Harris sidestepped the question. Uh, Harris spun it into 
a packing the court um, at all levels kind of answer, but did not answer the question at hand. And, and Vice President Biden uh, more or less ignored it altogether uh, in the first debate as well. We definitely want to talk about the court packing and, you know, some of the other times that the candidates dodged questions, kind of juxtaposing against what they did well in the debate. Were there any points that you were kind of surprised at how candidates were not telling the truth? I'm surprised that both the president and then the vice president uh, in the vice presidential debate both uh, claimed that the president stopped all travel from China. That's not what the president did. It's been fact-checked dozens of times by many news organizations. It's a it's a huge overstatement to suggest that that's what happened. Um, and uh, it's a, there's also evidence that it didn't do much uh, to be to begin with. And so the fact that um, they keep harping on that point uh, is 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 curious to me. Um, I thought that uh, there was a moment. Um, when there was a conversation about fracking and Senator Harris uh, has been an opponent of that in, in her individual political life. Uh, once somebody joins a, a vice presidential campaign, they often have to put their own preferences aside. And, and rather than just say, that's what she did, she kind of would shake her head no when, when Vice President Pence would say, you were for fracking in the primary, uh, or were for stopping fracking, I should say, uh, in, in, in the primary, and now you, now you say you're not. Um, and then the same with, uh, with uh, the person at the top of her ticket. And so, uh, you know, th those were moments where, you know, candidates weren't uh, quite telling uh, the, the, the whole truth, uh, as it were. Speaking of Senator Harris, one thing that I don't think we can have a conversation about this debate without talking about is that this has been only the third time in U.S. history that a woman has appeared on the vice presidential debate stage, and the first time that a woman of color has done so. I want to ask, how did the dynamics of the debaters and the moderators, race and gender, affect the debate, or how did, how did you see that affecting the debate, if at all? There's a lot of evidence that black women regularly have their credentials and qualifications minimized. And we saw it right out of the gate when the uh, moderator uh, called Senator Harris Kamala. She correct, she caught herself and said, oh, I'm sorry, Senator Harris. But then Senator Harris did what uh, black women have had to do for decades, which is to minimize their own qualifications and say, oh, it's fine. You know, I'm Kamala, which, you know, is you know not a mistake that a moderator is likely to make with a white male vice president and was one that the moderator didn't make with with vice president pence last night so right out of the gate we we saw you know some things that i think you could argue were, were fairly gendered and also perhaps related to race um i think it's also the case uh that you know vice president pence regularly uh, went past uh, the time uh, he was uh, to talk, and Senator Harris tried to stick to the to the time in the beginning of the debate. And once it became clear to her that the moderator wasn't that interested in uh, being aggressive at stopping them from talking, then she started to go over the time as well. But but uh, Vice President Pence went over regularly, um, almost to the point where he got a, a another full time period to answer some questions. And and part of his strategy was to ignore the question talk about what he wanted to talk about. And then, and then when he was informed that his time was up, begin answering the question, which then puts the pressure on the moderator of, well, gosh, I, I do want you to answer this. I thought of it, I asked it, so maybe I should give you some more time. And so, um, you know, th there were some of those dynamics. And I think those played to, to race and gender in ways that, that we often see um, in, in American political life and honestly in American cultural life. Now that we have brought up the moderator, something that I do wanna ask about moderator Susan Page is that you know she asked both Harris and Pence about if they had conversations with Biden and Trump 
respectively, regarding their health and the conditions upon which a vice president may need to take over. Both candidates dodged the question. Was this acceptable? Uh, and do you think the American people should have a greater concern over the conditions of a possible transition between the president and the vice president? Well, these would be the oldest people to take the oath of office uh, as president of the United States. So whichever one wins will, will be in that situation um, at the time of their uh, at the time of their oath. And so um, both uh, both of these folks uh, are, are kind of already outlived uh, how long. Um, white men tend to live in the United States and so on average. And so it's a fair question to ask about the health of, of both folks, especially since the president is currently uh, battling uh, COVID-19, which um, has been a fatal uh, disease for folks uh, in his age uh, range. Uh, and so it's, it's perfectly reasonable to ask that question. Um, it was disappointing to see neither of the candidates uh, address it, although not surprising. Um, I suppose, you know, giving them the biggest benefit of the doubt, you could say it's a kind of a morbid uh, conversation to talk about the person at the top of your ticket dying. Um, but of course, the number one factor in who a person picks as their vice president is the fact that they might die and they need somebody who can step in and be the president. Um, and so I was a little bit surprised to, to not see either candidate at least talk about why they felt they were ready to step in if need be. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that people uh, ought to be able to or ought to be able to include in their decision making uh, process if they would like to. Um, I thought both uh, Senator Harris and Vice President Pence uh, revealed, you know, their, how they make decisions and what their um, kind of general temper is like and and what about uh, the the top of the tickets uh, policy goals that they're most uh, excited about trying to fulfill and so we got a sense of you know, of what you know that they might be like um, should uh, they ever have to uh, sit in the Oval Office as, as president especially before uh, they would intend to um, coming at the before the end of, of the next term uh, for the the winner in November um, but yeah it was it was disappointing that neither of them answered the question um, it's a question that's been asked before. Um, it got asked in 1984. Uh, Ronald Reagan, who at that time, uh, you know, was what would have been the oldest uh, person uh, to take the oath upon his reelection. And so when he was running against Walter Mondale, he had kind of a rough go of it in the first debate. Uh, and so there were more questions about his age and mental acuity and, and things of that nature. And when he was asked about it in the next debate, uh, he addressed it head on with a joke, which then effectively sidestepped it. He said that he wouldn't hold his opponent's youth or inexperience against him, uh, which made his opponent, Walter Mondale, laugh. The crowd laughed. Everybody moved on uh, and, and didn't push the issue. And so there's, the, there's a history of, of folks not answering that question. Um, and it's, it's one that um, voters at least ought to be able to, uh, to think about as they decide who they'd like to be their president. It seems ever since the passage of the 25th Amendment that Americans in general are pretty clear about the line of presidential succession. I don't necessarily think that it would come as a surprise to anybody if, say, you know, Biden, if he were to be elected or Trump, if he were to be reelected, died, then their respective vice president would take over. Can you see the terms of these kind of negotiations between uh, presidents and vice presidents being something that actually swings voters or not? I think that vice presidents' jobs as, as candidates are to do no harm to the top of the ticket 
to act as a surrogate for the top of the ticket and to attack the top of the other side. Those are the big jobs on, on the campaign trail. Um, in terms of the negotiations that take place or, or the conversations that take place uh, between uh, a nominee for president and the person they would like to pick to be their vice president, um, you know, Joe Biden has famously uh, recounted how he told Barack Obama, you know, what, what he wants is to be the last person in the room before a big presidential decision gets made. And that was something that Obama was willing to agree to. And uh, to my recollection, that's what Biden said he promised to Senator Harris. Um, uh, President Trump, I don't think, talked in the same kind of way about that regarding his pick of, of, of Pence. But it's often the case that people pick a candidate that shores up potential weaknesses. So if if people thought in 2016, as many did, that um, the the thrice married uh, Donald Trump uh, with no real political experience uh, was going to be at the top of the ticket, maybe a conservative Christian like Mike Pence, uh, who's been a governor already held an executive uh, job would be uh, a, a useful balance to Trump's outsider status. And, you know, the similar kinds of things have happened with when George W. Bush was running, you know, picking Dick Cheney, someone who had served in his father's administration. Um, when, when Barack Obama was running, picking Joe Biden. So Obama was new and, and Biden had been around uh, for a very long time. Um, mostly candidates try to pick to to, a, to blunt a weakness um, in, in, in some way or, or another. And um, Biden, of course, promised to pick a woman um, and had also uh, faced some criticism uh, regarding issues of race and systemic racism in the US. And so picking a woman of color wasn't, wasn't a surprise. Um, you know, lucky for him, uh, there was one who had had executive experience as attorney general and federal experience as a senator uh, who also had been seeking the presidency in the same campaign. We had started to talk about it a couple of questions ago, but regarding the president's health, this is especially important because of the role the vice president plays in the federal government. How much do you think the president's health like loomed over the tone of the debate or you know the whole debate in general because we have had a pretty whirlwind week of news since the last debate last week maybe maybe not just how much the president's health loomed over the debate but how much did the did just the last week in news affect the debate well i think the president's health would have loomed larger had he still been at walter reed if he was still hospitalized i think that his health would have taken on a greater urgency uh, from the moderator's point of view. And I think that more voters would have had the idea that Mike Pence could be president is more salient in their minds, but the president going home, um, filming some videos, um, standing out you know, on the portico of, of the White House, you know, pro I, I think uh, probably had the effect of making questions about health less likely in the debate, which is certainly something that the, the Trump campaign uh, would have preferred. I want to pivot a little bit to kind of talking about some of the exchanges that we saw between the two on the issues of the environment. And the first thing I want to talk about regards the Green New Deal. And it seems that, in my opinion, the Republican strategy on attacking the Democrats so far has kind of been a little bit of trying to have your cake and eat it too. Like, for example, during the Trump and Biden debate, Trump would make Biden essentially say that he doesn't support the Green New Deal and then would claim that he's losing the radical left, quote unquote. 
But then here in the vice presidential debate, we saw Pence approach more of a strategy of critiquing the Biden-Harris plan for being too close to the Green New Deal and going too far. And as a result, he argues it would cause the loss of American jobs and uh, a resubmission of our economy to, say, global forces. So what do you think about this strategy? Do you think that uh, through this rhetoric, the Republican ticket is successfully able to kind of achieve this bi-pronged attack? Or do you view it as kind of contradictory and thus self-defeating? I think that since that issue is not at the top of the list of, of things that voters care about, it's less likely to be effective. I think that um, President Trump's strategy uh, in 2016 uh, and again, I think in 2020, is to paint himself as an outsider, to paint career politicians uh, as hypocrites and as people in the pocket of different kinds of organized interests. And so I think from the Trump campaign's point of view, claiming that the Biden-Harris plan is too in the pocket of the radical left um, or um, abandoning the radical left fits with the idea that politicians are hypocrites who blow whichever way the wind goes and will do whatever it takes to, 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 to cede power. And so I, I think that the logical contradiction is less important for the Trump strategy, which is more to say, I'm rich, I'm an outsider, that can't be bought by these interests. And so you can trust me and you can't trust people like Joe Biden who will take money and, and do whatever it is that money tells him to do. And, and that, I think that's, that's an argument that Trump, um, I think would like uh, people to have in their minds about, about Biden and Harris as they think about who they wanna vote for. While we're still on the topic of environmental issues, I wanna talk about the exchange that the vice presidential candidates had on fracking. I was listening to that and you know, from the issue of the environment at large, Pence made a very, very conscious choice to kind of pivot and then bring up the issue of fracking and then go after Senator Harris and the Biden ticket on um, their prior commitments to uh, banning fracking or being against fracking. Um, and, I, and I was listening to that and thinking, oh, I guess Mike Pence listens to The Daily, right? Um, because they had that episode a while back where they went to, I think, Pennsylvania and you know, talked about that as a swing issue. But um, with that in mind, do you think that this is going to be a salient attack on the Biden ticket, especially when considering some of these Rust Belt area swing voters, or not really? I think that that's the kind of thing where it reminds us about the importance of the Electoral College in presidential debates. So we spent five or 10 minutes on an issue that affects a very small number of voters in a couple of states. And so when you when you look at the issues people say are most important to them, when you look at the issues people are searching for when they go to Google, fracking is not among them. <laughs> but in Western Pennsylvania, which both Joe Biden and Donald Trump would like to gain some votes uh, in order to win that swing state, Fracking is a relatively important issue, especially to the people who engage in, in the mining um, that, that comes from that technique. And so there's, you know, this is an example of how debates can sometimes focus on these issues that 
95% of the country might be saying, why are we talking about this? This isn't related to our lives at all. And the 5% that are tuned in happen to also be uh, folks who live in consequential places um, in, in states that are, that, are, that are close enough to contest. And, and so um, I think the politics of it was all about the electoral college and, and less about philosophies about um, environmental protection and regulation and, and supportive business and, um, you know, uh, being a good steward of the earth. Before we talk about anything else that happened in the debate, I kind of want to ask you about snap polls, because on CNN, on whatever uh, news outlet you choose to watch coverage from after the, the debate, a lot of the time they'll, you know, like come up with these numbers and these percentages about what people like focus groups thought about the debate. And I'm especially asking you this because of your work with the Election Research Center. Can you walk us through a little bit what like a snap poll is or what networks and news companies use snap polls for? Well, they're usually for kind of instantaneous, relatively real-time reaction to a, a focusing event that lots of people are paying attention to at the same time, which is just not how we live our lives, right? Um, you know, um, some people are just getting into Mad Men, some people watched it when it came out, right? And so, but a debate is something, you know, that uh, is there, it, it, it lasts while it's live, then it's over. And it, it's, it's different than how uh, public opinion polling uh, typically occurs. So for example, um, this week, another Marquette Law School poll came out in Wisconsin showing Joe Biden, you know, kind of holding on to that relatively narrow lead over, over Donald Trump. And they go into the field and spend maybe four days uh, to get 800 people, right? So to do a flash poll in a few minutes um, is not likely to gather uh, a representative sample of the public in the way that a carefully constructed random digit dial public opinion poll would. Um, it might be useful in, in terms of giving us an instant assessment of um, a, a, a take on, on, you know, who won the debate, but of course, questions like who won the debate are largely driven by who you thought won the debate before you even started watching, right? There, there's not a lot of uh, difference between um, those numbers and, and just in, in pure partisanship. And so, you know, they, they, they take place really quickly. They don't ask a lot of questions. And so um, they might know gender and party or something like that because they can't stay on the phone long because they have to make lots of calls to, to, if, if they're doing it on the phone, if they're doing it on the web. Um, they have to be very careful about um, are they gathering a sample that, uh, that approximates uh, what the census tells us the country looks like. And so um, there, there are lots of reasons to be skeptical of snap polls, um, not the least of which is that some of the people they called didn't watch the debate. Um, some of the people that that did don't have a strong opinion about it, but want to tell something uh, to a pollster, um, and also that many people are just engaged in kind of a partisan cheerleading when, when they when they get that result. I think th they're of value if if the the public decision is so lopsided that it can kind of overcome all of the methodological limitations that we might find in a snap poll. But but usually their their only value is to help the media shape a narrative of of who won, which is relying on some kind of dubiously uh, collected information. Absolutely. A great quick lesson in media and poll literacy. <laughs> but back to 
more of the contents of the debate. I know you are pretty active on Twitter during the debates. <laughs> I definitely appreciated all your insight and your takes. And you were definitely very vocal on Twitter about uh, Chris Wallace's job moderating at the presidential debate last week. And then, you know, maybe a little bit of coverage last night on how Susan Page was handling the moderator job. What kinds of differences and what kinds of, you know, different avenues of attack did you see between Chris Wallace and Susan Page? Well, they had different tasks because Chris Wallace had to try to rein in President Trump, who has no interest uh, in in following the the pre-agreed upon rules. And Trump's strategy was to try to goad Biden into a large gaffe or a flash of anger or um, an expression of of unpreparedness to kind of be able to, to push the narrative he had been pushing, which was that Biden wasn't up to the job mentally. And so he did not have an interest in following the rules. He had an interest in trying to have a moment uh, that that uh, revealed something negative about Biden. And so Chris Wallace was stuck trying to decide, how do I handle this? He's not listening to me. He's not stopping talking, you know, when it's not his turn. Um, what can I do? Uh, whereas um, in the other debate, you know, the candidates are seated, which is already a little bit less um, aggressive. Uh, and, and so um, it's, it's harder to be super aggressive seated as compared to standing, I think. Um, there was also um, the narrative that had spun out of the first debate. And so people were certainly watching to see if, if people were going to, if the candidates were going to be rude to each other. Um, there was also the gender dynamic of uh, here we have a man um, talking over a, a woman moderator and a, a woman of color candidate. And so, um, you know, Vice President Pence also had to imagine um, backlash he might receive for, uh, you know, appearing sexist and uh, patriarchal, uh, which there was some, uh, I think, chatter on, on social media and in the mainstream news media after the debate about that. Um, I thought that uh, Susan Page did a, a good job asking questions that tried to pin down the candidates about views that they clearly hold that also uh, might not be terribly popular. Uh, and both candidates did a, a fairly good job of not answering that attempt to pin them down. I, I wish that she had asked more follow-ups to say, thank you for that answer, but that's not what I asked you. Here's what I asked you. Can you answer that? And if you won't, then we're just going to move on. I, I think that's something a moderator ought to be empowered to do. I thought Chris Wallace um, tried his best to try to shout back and, and shout down the president and, and try to corral things. But um, I don't know that he did a great job. And I also think that some of the questions he asked um, allowed for some false equivalence that is, it just isn't quite present, which you know has the appearance of being objective, but, but in fact skews reality to the side that the false balance is, is being applied to. And so uh, I don't know that either moderator distinguished themselves, but I also don't think that either of them were, were so terrible that we ought to uh, you know, take them out back and take away their media cards, if that was a thing. Now, kind of stepping back from some of the specifics about the debate, I kind of want to just ask uh, your thoughts on just some of the your your overarching thoughts or just kind of like uh, concluding thoughts on it in general. Um, Did you learn anything about either candidate in this debate? And if so, what? Well, I think we learned that Kamala Harris can handle the pressure uh, in in a really high stakes situation. We already knew that Vice President Pence uh, could do that, but Senator Harris, I thought, um, showed that she was up to the task and, and could stand withstand the pressure, could withstand uh, difficult questions, um, push back from her opponent. Um, she was not afraid to go on the attack. She was not afraid to explain her views. She wasn't uh, 
didn't struggle with uh, explaining uh, the vice president's uh, agenda for the country. And so, um, so we learned that she cleared that, that bar of handling the pressure um, on, on a national stage. She'd shown that she could do that in the, in the primary debates, but this is different. There's way more people watched last night than, than, than tend to watch uh, primary debates. I don't know that we learned that much about uh, Vice President Pence. I, I think um, perhaps uh, we, we learned that he you know, is a full-throated supporter of, of the president's early in his administration and during the campaign. I think there was some whispers among reporters and some suggestions in reporting that um, you know, Vice President Pence is there to be the adult with the political newcomer who does things in you know, atypical ways and doesn't um, seem terribly hewed to the to the verifiable truth when he makes statements, but but Vice President Pence didn't have any trouble supporting uh, things the president has just said and done that aren't true um, last night, and so he's he's a he's clearly on that side. But he also is an effective advocate for um, issues that are important to uh, evangelical Christians. Uh, you know, he he first kind of pivoted on the abortion question to go back and 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 uh, and hit uh, Senator Harris, but then uh, came back and, and and answered that, and that's an issue. Um, highly uh, related to uh, some voters' preferences about the Supreme Court. And so those, those are areas where uh, the, the Republicans um, uh, at, the, at, the, at the top and bottom of the ticket are, um, I think, you know, making some hay with their, with their most ardent supporters. One thing to follow up on that, and I'd also kind of loop in the topic I'd like to get your thoughts on as well. One thing that I thought that watching the debate, I, I guess you could say, learned about the vice president came towards the end of the debate when the moderator asked the candidates about if they would accept the results of the election. And it came as a surprise to me that Pence was willing to sidestep the question and uh, reaffirm the Trump administration's accusations about uh, the voter fraud implications of mail-in voting, rather than just saying, yes, of course we will. You know, Adam and I were talking about this a little bit, but it's, and it's kind of crazy to say this about the president of the United States, but it's one thing if Donald Trump says it, but I feel like it's a different thing if that message is adhered to by um, the remaining members of his administration, and especially maybe the more um, clean-cut ones such as Vice President Pence. But because Pence was still willing to stick to that narrative of not necessarily, or not directly answering if they would accept the results of the election if they lost, that that was something that was a little bit new for me. But at the same time, as um, you were saying, it is still Vice President Pence affirming and re-supporting the arguments and the agenda of Donald Trump. So I guess, to me, this was, I guess, novel and extreme enough where it did feel like I was learning something about uh, uh, new about him. But was it for you? I think it fits into what I was saying before about just the, the Vice President is a full-throated supporter of anything and everything the president says and wants, um, which is different than what we were told about him when he was uh, first selected uh, to be uh, the vice presidential candidate. But that's um, particularly common um, in in, uh, in presidential campaigns. So, you know, in 1980, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush competed for the Republican uh, nomination. George H.W. Bush was pro-choice. 
he loses, he becomes the vice presidential candidate. He is now pro-life because Ronald Reagan is pro-life. And so these things happen commonly. I've never seen them happen around the issue of accepting the result of the election. And, and that's terribly alarming that the president and vice president are not willing to say, if we lose in a legitimate election, we will concede. Um, it's, it, this makes it all the more important uh, that people uh, cast their votes, but it also makes it all the more important that the news media do an accurate job reporting on the results. It, it's, it's quite likely we'll have an election week and not an election night, as all of the mail-in and absentee votes uh, are, are tabulated, and that will probably take more time, especially in states like ours, where lots of people are seeking those ballots and they tend to be tilted to the Democrats. And so we'll be very likely have a situation where the votes that are being counted that were cast on election day show one result, and then it's possible that that result could change as all, the, all of the other votes are counted. And so it'll be very important for the news media to, to note that this was an atypical election season, but it was a normal election. It's normal to count the votes. It's normal to count all of them. It's normal to uh, wait to call a winner until we're confident that that person has gathered more votes in one state than the other candidate. That might take more time. That's perfectly normal. It's normal that the losing candidate um, does not end up holding office. That is what happens. Uh, and so re repeating those things and highlighting what's normal about the process of election administration is, is going to be really important this year, I think, regardless of who wins. Was there anything in the debate that wasn't addressed that you feel like you would have liked to have been discussed? Well, there are lots of issues um, that we could we could hear about, and so and and we should have two more opportunities to get all of those addressed. And so um, there, there's lots of things that uh, still ought to come up um, related to uh, foreign policy, uh, related to. Um, the handling of uh, race relations and racial inequality in the United States uh, related to uh, public education, uh, related to the long-term health of, of entitlement programs like Social Security, um, related to uh, the, the likelihood of the economy and, and the process by which the economy can get back on its feet. Um, you know, these are all questions that I think deserve more time. Um, and, and hopefully we'll get to hear about them um, if we indeed have two more debates. As we're kind of wrapping up, I want to ask maybe one more question. I feel like this debate was hyped up so much, and especially in light of the president's health and, you know, the possibility of one of these candidates taking over for a president, you know, in whatever event. Did this debate actually mean as much as the media, as the media in air quotes, was making it out to? I saw, you know, like a bunch of takes online of people saying like, oh, this actually matters so much because of these extenuating circumstances. But I also know, you know, that th statistically and historically, the VP pick and the debate have not been, you know, ex exactly deciding factors in an election. So maybe how important was last night? How important in terms of who wins the election? Probably not that important. If if um, somebody was able to compel you to cast a bet on which debate would be the most important um, and you had to pick one of them, the vice presidential debate is not the one you should pick. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I don't know that it was terribly important, uh, but one reason these things matter is that they are unscripted, the stakes are high, anything could happen, and hopefully the parties have nominated uh, qualified, competent 
politicians who can also communicate adequately and don't engage in the kind of behavior that would upend the election, but the potential is there. And that's one of the reasons um, they get so hyped. So much of what happens on a campaign is scripted and controlled and tightly monitored and tightly regulated that um, these opportunities, which are also monitored, controlled and, and regulated, but not fully controlled by the campaigns are, are opportunities for us to see what happens when um, they don't have an opportunity to precisely control what they share with us. Speaking of tightly controlling what a campaign may share with us, we've seen just in the news this morning, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, that Trump is floating the idea that he might not participate in the next presidential debate if it's held virtually. Who do you think this decision would benefit more, him or his opponent? I think it would benefit Joe Biden. Um, when you're behind, you want opportunities to control the agenda and get in front of a camera. And uh, and so I think um, it benefits Biden to not want to, uh, if, if it benefits Biden if, if, if the president doesn't want to um, engage in a debate. And my understanding of what's happened since is that the president has uh, said, well, what or, or has agreed to the idea of doing the debate a week later um, in person, but then he would want to do a third debate and make that one a week later, to which my understanding is the Biden campaign has said, the debates are scheduled when they're scheduled, so we'll do one on the 22nd if you want to wait, but we won't do a third one. And I'm not sure um, where the brinksmanship goes. To me, it's it's a mistake on the Biden campaign's part. Um, they should just say, we'll debate you wherever, whenever, it doesn't matter to us. Um, it seems to be a stronger position. And now both campaigns are in the position of not wanting to do a debate. The Biden campaign's in the position of wanting to do the debates as agreed upon and as scheduled, which is a stronger position. Um, but that won't stop the president from saying Biden's afraid to debate him if they only have two debates. Lots to think about, lots to develop in the coming days. Thank I'm sure you. we'll have many news cycles between now and tomorrow. God, many, oh. many, many. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor, and you sharing bet. with us your wealth of knowledge and experience on the subject. My pleasure. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.